Let's read our passage first. Romans 12, one through eight. I'm reading from the NIV. So, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So a small recap on what we have learned so far this fall. In chapters nine and 10, we learned about the sovereignty of God and that we don't, we don't get to have a say in who God chooses to show mercy. He has a plan and he will bring it to pass in whatever manner he pleases. We also saw that righteousness comes from believing what God says, not by what we do for him. And because of this, Gentiles were brought into salvation. And we were grafted into the family tree by our faith, not because of what we feel we can offer the Lord. Because let's be honest, we have not much to offer. But the result of this is that it has provoked Israel to jealousy. Romans 10, 19 through 21 says, again I ask, did Israel understand, not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to disobedient and obstinate people. In chapter 11, we see that Paul continues on with this idea that Gentiles were grafted in and offered a salvation that they never asked for and probably didn't even know they needed. But, but the warning is, that's not something we as Gentiles should be proud of. It's because we did nothing to earn it. God, just in his mercy, said, here I am. And when we accepted him, we were grafted into the family of God. Romans eleven seventeen says, excuse me, some of the branches have been broken off, concerning Israel, and though you, a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So there's a great place in humil for humility in our relationship with the Lord. Paul goes on to remind us in chapter 12, we do need to be humble. 
But he do, it does he remind us that um, he's not done with Israel and God will save Israel for the love of patriarchs. The nation of Israel is not so far gone that they can't be saved. But God has allowed a hardening of the heart until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Through his letters to the Romans, Paul has laid out a strong doctrine regarding the spiritual condition of man, God's remedy for the problem of sin and our um, salvation. And our salvation is by grace alone. And he's laid out doctrine concerning God's sovereignty and mercy. And because of all we've learned about our place in God's family, that it's not by our works or our goodness or our knowledge, our salvation is by God's grace and mercy and his kindness to us. And because that's true, it stands to reason that we owe him something. Now, I have this memory in my head that it's not in my notes, but I keep thinking about this. And I, I think I wanted to share it because I think sometimes we get attitude in our mind. <laughs> a long, long time ago, in a land not so far away, um, my husband and I did youth ministry, and we had separate discipleship groups. Now, I was a baby. I was 21, or something. And, the, and I had these teenage girls who were just like, they, they were the cream of the crop, churched girls, um, very <laughs> spoiled, come from the high end of town. And I was just like this dorky, I still dorky, 21-year-old, maybe I was 22. I was still really young. Um, and they were, they were intimidating just in their, the way they carried themselves because I was not their kind of person. But anyway, so I was supposed to lead this discipleship group. Now these girls, um, we were going through the Psalms and as we were talking about um, we owe God our praise and worship, that we owe him that because of his goodness, because he's God. They sat back and crossed their arms in an attitude of superiority and said, God is just a user. I was horrified, completely horrified. Um, and it didn't really, I rebuked them strongly. <laughs> and I had strong words to say to um, the leadership in general about trying to take these children on a mission trip. Um, but I think that sometimes, though we may never ever say that, I would never say that. I think sometimes I think I'm too good for God. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, I don't owe him anything. I'm entitled to everything. But I think that that, our passage, really should nip that attitude in the bud. And we have to be very careful about how easy it is to slide into that way of thinking. So verse 1 chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, Doug always says, when you see therefore, you should ask, what is it therefore? So we need to go back and find out what Paul was thinking and what his thought is as he's continuing on. The only thing that we have that he's taught us, the only thing that we have that is of any use to the Lord is ourselves. 
Our body, mind, spirit should be what we offer the Lord. He has no need of our money. He doesn't need our positions. He certainly doesn't need our ideas. He just wants us, our hearts and mind, our minds, to be on him and with him all the time. He wants to be preeminent in our thoughts and in our hearts. The word here, the um, word offer here, is a verb, and I'm sorry, I'm like, my daughter's in fourth grade, and so we're like all about grammar and all the things, so. But the word offer is a verb. It is an action word. Webster's Dictionary says um, it means to present as an act of worship or devotion, to declare one's readiness or willingness to make available, or to be made available. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice. He offered himself as a sacrifice to the point of death. And the least we can do is offer up our life in return. He gave us death. He asked for our lives. Sacrifice is being willing to give up something valuable. To be a living sacrifice is to be willing to put aside our fleshy desires and to live a life that is pleasing to God. Listen, you guys. <laughs> We are innately selfish. It is in our nature to consider ourselves first. What we think, how we feel, our sense of right and wrong is always superior to others. This is how we move in our world. Um, my daughter, Colleen, she's brilliant. I love her. She's a fabulous human. If you don't know Colleen, you should all know Colleen. But we are funny because if I have an opinion on something, I have an opinion for a reason. I think I'm right. She's like, how, how can you work like that? She's like, my opinion can always change. I'm like, well, that's kind of dumb. But those are the conversations I have because my sense of right and wrong is superior clearly to hers. So, um, <laughs> so but this is how we operate. This is our nature. This is who we are. Our dreams and our ideas are automatically more valuable than other people's, and our self-centeredness knows zero bounds. It takes over at the drop of a hat. But we are being called, in this, in this verse, we are being called to live a life free from our natural inclinations. We are to live our life as a living sacrifice, and it is to be living a supernatural life have to supersede that natural inclination. Roy Hessian said in Calvary Road that the Lord Jesus cannot live in us until the proud self within us is broken. This simply means that the hard, unyielding self, which justifies itself, wants its own way, stands up for its rights, seeks its own glory, it at last bows its head to God's will, admits it's wrong, gives up its own way to Jesus, surrenders its rights, discards its own glory, that the Lord Jesus might have all and be all. In other words, it is dying to self and self-attitudes. Being a living sacrifice is the calling, it is our calling of the holy, of, of, of living holy lives as God defines it, not as man defines it. And it's worship because a life lived in this way seeks God before it seeks my own will. Now worldly thinking says that holiness and righteousness aren't that important. Our culture says it's subjective. There is no truth. And 
it's not a big deal to just follow your own whim. Our worldly thinking says it's more important to be happy or to fulfill the whims of the flesh. Deny yourself nothing, but God, God calls us to holiness as he sees holiness to be. David Guzik says, the holiness we bring to the altar is a decision for holiness and a yielding to the work of holiness in our lives. As we present our body as a living sacrifice, God makes our life holy by burning away impurities. Verse two says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, I love a good dictionary. So are you ready? I have definitions for you. Conform, it means to be similar or identical, to be in agreement or harmony, to be obedient or compliant to, to act in accordance with prevailing standards or customs. Transform, to change in composition or structure or to change the outward form or appearance, or to change in character or condition, is just simply change. Renew is to make, a, make like new, restore to freshness, vigor, or perfection, to make extensive changes. And the mind, elements in an individual that feels, perceives, thinks, wills, and especially reasons. Now I tell you this definition because I rewrote this sentence using the definitions of these words. Do not be obedient or, or compliant to the tendencies and characteristics of the world system that seeks to gratify only self. Instead, we must change in our character or condition by setting our minds, our perceptions, our feelings on godly things. Now, Paul wrote this as an exhortation to the believer, and this is a command to follow. It isn't just a mere gentle encouragement to do the right thing. This is command. Do it. Do not conform. The other night in our home group, we talked about how the church at large has compromised her holiness. She has conformed to the pattern of the world. And I think that it really merits discussion and thought, a lot of thought. I see conformity in the American church when we are more concerned with comfort than with biblical righteousness. There's conformity when we consider happiness a higher priority than joy. When we strive for riches, thinking that it's evidence of God's approval somehow. We are friends with the world when we refuse to understand what sin cost our God, and we close our eyes to sin. We conform to the pattern of worldly thinking when we let our feelings dictate how we view God's word and we think that we can solve spiritual problems with worldly programs. And I know probably you guys can all add to that list. Where do you see conformity? But as much as we can look at the American church and see her faults that way, we must consider the ways in which we compromise and that we are friendly to the world system. Let's be honest, it is a lot easier to go along than to go against the current. And it's gonna get harder. I keep getting a vision, you know, a picture in my head. I don't know if any of you guys have seen The Chosen, um, but that opening scene where all the fish 
are going the same way, and then all of a sudden one turns around and goes the opposite way. We're supposed to be that fish. <laughs> We're gonna go the opposite way. Go against the current. James 4.4 4 says, you adulterous people, that's strong words. You cheaters, fornicators, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. How strong. Enmity means it's a positive, active, and typically mutual hatred or ill will. And there's not an in-between. It's like you're either friends with the Lord or you're enemies with the Lord. There's no zero, there's zero neutral ground here. And we have to choose sides. John writes um, in, in the Revelation, in chapter two, verses four and five, he wrote to the church of Ephesus, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the thing you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. To the church in Sardis, in chapter three, he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and hold it fast and repent. To the church in Laodicea, also in chapter 3, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you, vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and wear clothes to wear and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, I think of that picture, that really famous picture of Jesus standing in a garden knocking on a door, and there's like no doorknob or anything. I always think about that. I always think of this verse in the context of he's knocking at the door of hearts of people who don't know him. But in here, he's talking to people who know the Lord or say they do, and they've let their hearts go cold. He's talking to believers. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. And I don't think it's a little. It is like, open the dang door. I'm here. I want fellowship with you. These believers that, that um, John is speaking to in Revelation, they have forsaken the fellowship with Jesus to fellowship with the world. And in their pride, they think they have it all together. They got something to offer. They're naked and blind. <laughs> they have molded themselves to the world. They have conformed. Have you? I'm going to say yes because, you know, we just are like that. We're sinful like that. It's sneaky. 
I see me in here. I see myself in aspects of these churches. And it's so easy just to slide into it. So now we know conformity with the world is bad. And the Lord, but the Lord has very strong feelings on where our loyalties lie. There's zero in between, ladies. Pick a side. But how do we transform our minds? Because now we have to go on. Because now we're faced with conformity. Now we have to transform. If we love Jesus, that is what we want to do. But these verses, these verses give us a clue. Um, in, the, um, in the Revelation verses, give us a clue. And it was, repent. <laughs> repent. Change our mind. We got to change our minds about things. And we have to change the direction in which we are going spiritually. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Matthew 22.37 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. Romans 8.5 and 6 says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds um, set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, and the mind governed by the Spirit is peace. Now, renewing the mind, strangely enough, takes place in the mind. We, all by ourselves, control what we think about and what we ponder. No one has control over that but us. And we have to make a decision whether to trust the Lord or not. It is in the mind. It's not feelings-based. And it's not a job or a task to do or accomplish. It's an exercise in keeping our thoughts in the right place. Now, Brielle, so if you don't know, I have a nine-year-old, and she's constantly re reminding me, like, I'm nearly 10. And when I'm 10, I'm a teenager. <laughs> she's, like, all about being 10. But, but Brielle, I don't know if you know her very well, but she has a very active imagination. She is busy in her mind all the time. And um, it wreaks havoc when we have to do homework, but <laughs> she has a story happening all the time. Um, but she has a hard time going to sleep at night because she's so busy in her head. And so because of that, then she like starts thinking about things that are scary. And when bedtime comes and things are quiet, she freaks herself out. It's super fun. So frequently, we frequently have a conversation about keeping our minds on the Lord. And I have to tell her, I can't do this for you. I can't. I can help you. I can give you tools. But you have to make up your mind. You have to change your mind. And I tell her that we are in a battle for the Lord. That as young as nine years old earlier, as soon as you make a decision for Jesus, you are in a war. You're in a battle. All the time. And the battle takes place in the mind, and the heart is the prize. And I wish I could fight that for her. I do. It would make my life easier. But I can't. I can't stand. I can't stand and fight the battle for her. She must enter the fray and be willing to keep her mind on the things of the Lord. And it's the same for you and I. <laughs> Listen, we are in the middle of a pandemic. And things are a little wild. 
I'm gonna say. And it is easy to freak ourselves out. I do it, hopefully not on the daily, but I do it frequently. What if, Lord, what if this happens? What if they're gonna come and take my child away from me? Like, I do, I freak myself out. I like, I got it going on in here. I wonder where Brielle gets it from. <laughs> but the Lord is quick to say, put your mind where it belongs. My mind doesn't belong in the what if. The mind doesn't belong in the fear. The mind doesn't belong anywhere but on the Lord Jesus Christ and his mercy and his grace and his kindness to us. He is faithful, always faithful. He is the rock, we cannot be moved. He cannot be moved, and if we stand there, we won't be moved either. Focus the mind, strengthen the mind. In Isaiah 26, three and four, it says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal. In continually renewing our mind, the end result is that we will be transformed into a new creation. And, and because our mind is right, we will be able to discern the will of God in our lives. It's, that's a good thing. In Romans 12, three, it says, for by the grace given me, I to say to every one of you, do not think, because we're now we're moving on, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Paul continues in giving instruction. So we're, we're not conforming, we're transforming, we're renewing, and now you're doing all that? Stay humble. Stay humble. Don't think of yourself higher than you ought to. Humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all, says Andrew Murray said that. Paul's encouraging us to keep a proper perspective of who you are and be humble. It is often said, and I don't know where this um, quote originated from, but it's often said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but of thinking of yourself less. And humility is not the ability to keep yourself from prideful thoughts. It's not humble at all to just think and act like you're a worm and that you're of no value to anybody. That's not humility either. True humility really is just not even considering yourself at all. It's like not part of the equation of what you're doing. So one day, this is embarrassing, you guys. One day, again, a long, long time ago in a land not that far away, <laughs> Gresham, I think. Yeah, it was Gresham. I was listening to a Bible teacher on the radio while I was cooking dinner, and the teacher was talking about humility. My dang first thought was, I'm pretty humble. I'm pretty humble, guys. But you know what? Praise the Lord, because he let me be aware of my own thoughts. Because I realized almost immediately, like, that was dumb. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not humble. And now, as I've gotten older and oh so much wiser, I think I'm more aware of my own pride. <laughs> See how sneaky? It's so nasty. It's just, <laughs> just I right in there, that natural man is fabulous. But just last night, you guys, just last night, 
I was finishing up my study, and I was like looking over commentaries, and I don't want to get anything wrong, or, and I'm interested. But <laughs> and I like, I was like, yeah, this. And I put my hand in the air. I said, victorious. And I was doing that because I was thinking. My thoughts were lining up with the commentary. A commentator. I was like, I got it right. And Brielle, Brielle said, Oh, are you praising the Lord because your study's done? I was like, I was not. I was just like, I'm so smart. And I told her, I was like, oh, no. See, Brielle, if you don't know Brielle, you should know Brielle because she's a fabulous human as well. She's like, she just loves Jesus. But she's like, she was completely scandalized. And the look she gave me was like, how dare you? Because so, um, so I, I told her the truth. And the repentance of pride in the presence of a child is really humbling. <laughs> clearly, clearly I needed it. I was like, yeah, I got it right. Oh, it's so sneaky. That <laughs> natural man. I'm working on my Bible study, you guys. I just think, I think that is just the funniest thing. I, I'm, I'm a dork, I guess. <laughs> so... But as we think about and discuss the gifts that God has so generously given to us, is this the right page? Um, I don't think, I, we can see that God's faithful in how he's chosen to use us in our lives. And I don't think that it's necessarily prideful to be able to walk confidently in the path that God has set before us. I think there's a difference between being sure of our certain calling and being confident and walking in that and, it, and prideful. It really is about the mind. And where do you put your focus there? If we remember that God is the gift giver and he dispenses the gifts as he sees fit and we're merely a tool in his hand and he's just as gracious to give us something to do, then maybe pride is a little less. Maybe. Confidence comes when we trust the Lord as we use the gifts he's given us. In verse 4 of our passage, it says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though, form, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. You know, there's no hierarchy of gifts. There's not one gift that is more important than the other. We're all to function together. And in God's vision, or in God's wisdom, um, and in the way he sees things, they all have the same value, and they have the same purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God and make his name great. And he's not a user. Now, with some of these gifts, maybe there's responsibilities that are greater um, than with some gifts when others. But really, we all stand responsible for the Lord, before the Lord in how we use those gifts. And with that being said, then we have zero reason for pride when regarding spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says regarding spiritual gifts, but um, it says, but one in the same spirit works 
in all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So it's by the grace of God that we have gifts at all. But our flesh tends toward pride. It just does. Pride is a separator between us and God always. And somehow we elevate ourselves or sometimes we elevate others because of the gift that God has granted them. And we must be aware of that and we need, must continually be renewing our thinking in this area. It's in the mind. Oh, we, oh, oh baby. We as a body of believers are one body. And I like, I like how Paul says in the hair, he says that we belong to one another, right? We're a family, we go together. Our, spirit, our gifts should work in harmony with each other. We all have the same purpose. And there should be affection and unity in the way we live in this world together. John 13, 34 and 35 says, I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if we have love for each other, genuine, real love, then we won't have room for pride or comparison with each other, because comparison is terrible. And we can operate in our gifts in unity of heart, but we operate in our gifts in a great variety of ways. Verses... Now the end of the chapter, or this passage, is 6b through 8. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now this is a list of gifts in this passage. And there are others in 1 Corinthians 12. And I think because God is a God of variety, there's probably an infinite number amount of gifts. I think it's only limited by God's imagination. But all the gifts have a purpose. The purpose is to glorify God's name, to make his name great. But I like this list because it's an exhortation really in how to use them a little bit. If you prophesy, now, not in the manner of telling the future, that's not what this means, but instead, it's communicating the heart of God. So if you prophesy, then do it in faith. If you're gifted in giving, do so with liberality, as David Guzik said. If you're gifted in showing mercy, don't be stingy in showing your mercy. Be merciful. If you're a leader, then be diligent and don't back away from what you're called to. It's the heart behind what we do when we exercise our gifts are just as important as acting in them. If you teach, then teach. If you serve, then serve. If you encourage, then encourage. Do it. Walk in your gifts. We do the things God has called us to, and he's equipped us to do it. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our lives are an act of worship. God has called us, he's equipped us to worship him in the way he's called us to worship him, collectively and individually. And we don't get to deny God the use of the gifts that he's given to us without consequence. 
You know, as we read, we read that in the letters to the, to the churches in Revelation, there was consequence because they forgot their gifts. They forgot their God. Roy Hessian also said that people imagine that dying to self makes one miserable, but it, it's just the opposite. It is the refusal to die to self that makes one miserable. The more we know of death with him, the more we shall know of his life in us and the more real peace and joy. So God has called us to supernatural living and he doesn't ever ask easy things, but the simple, we simply follow Jesus. Simply make a decision to believe what he said is true. Simple, it's not complicated. Simply keep your mind on the purposes of God and don't be distracted by those who don't know him or don't even care to know him. It's simple, keep your mind where it belongs. It's not complicated. Simply obey the calling and have faith in the one who has lavishly bestowed gifts. It's simple, but it's not easy. We're going against our nature. I have to say that as we do this study, my heart feels so burdened. If for myself too, like I'm not any different than any one of you. We study and it's not for the purpose of knowledge. I mean, it's great. I mean, I like being smart, clearly. Um, but God has a purpose. We are here for a reason. God has called us to make his name great. And, for the, and the reason that his name should be made great is that the world needs to turn from its ways and follow Jesus. That is our calling. We are an example. We are a picture of Jesus to the world. It's hard, but it's simple. It's not complicated. We as a church, I as Sam, have failed and become lukewarm and forgotten my first love and go along to get along and all of the things. But we're called to supernatural things and I just want to, I want to exhort you, not encourage you, I want to exhort you, keep your mind right. Keep it placed in the one who saves us. I drive sometimes or I walk around and I see people and I, I look at them and I think, I think you're probably going to hell if you died today. Not in a mean way, not in a mean way. But who has told them? Who has shown them the love of Jesus in their lives? Who has bestowed grace and mercy? Who has taught? Who has encouraged? Who has given? Who has served them that maybe they could see something different? I was listening to a song on my way here. And it was by Casting Crowns. And I think, I think it's, um, it's got to start right here. I think it's what it's called. But the ending part of it says, we, we are the people who are called by his name. And if we will surrender all of our pride and turn from our ways, he will hear from heaven and forgive our sin. He will heal our land. But it starts right here in the church. We're the people who are called by his name. If we surrender our pride and turn from our ways, he will hear from heaven and forgive our sin, and he will heal our land. 
And there is no doubt that this world needs healing. This isn't even about the United States. This isn't even about politics. This is about what people are walking around. If they get hit by a car today, where are they going? Do we have mercy and compassion upon them? Do we look at them with pity? Do we? I don't always. Sometimes I'm just irritated. <clears throat> but we are his people, called by his name, with the calling to make his name great, that the world might be saved. Let's pray. Oh God, I just ask that today we would have repentant hearts before you. God, please forgive me for my, my lazy, I'm lazy. And Jesus, I just, um, I just ask that you would reveal to us in our hearts where we have strayed from you, where we have allowed compromise, where we have conformed to the pattern of the world. Lord, you don't ask us complicated things. You do not ask us easy things. But I just asked, but I ask of you, Lord, that you would strengthen our knees. That the feebleness, the weakness that we have, Lord, I just ask that we would find strength in you. Teach us, Lord, how to renew our minds, that we might be transformed and be useful tools in your arsenal. Lord, give us um, the steadfastness, the courage to stand in the face of opposition. Even the opposition is our own pride. Lord, I just ask that you would use us um, as women to change the world that we are in, that in our even little reach, Lord, that, that we would be people who are used by you. Lord, give us a heart of, of compassion, but even more, Lord, give us a heart of repentance before you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for grafting us in. Thank you for being the root that supports this branch. Lord, help us to not take that for granted. In Jesus' name, amen.